We've been making our way through this book that deals with ministry and what it should look like in the, in the church, and especially um, as that's reflected in the teaching on uh, church, family, and society. Titus 2, beginning to read at verse 6. This is the inerrant word of God. <clears throat> Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Amen. Father God, we come to your word. It is our desire to uh, live it out and to have it uh, change our lives. And I pray that you would anoint my lips and enable me to faithfully preach it and each one of us to hear it, to love it, and to do it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> John Haynes likes to joke around about some preachers who slice off uh, sermons like baloney. And uh, that's what we had to do last week. We couldn't really finish the whole thing. You know, the, the idea is uh, the sermon's always the same size and you just cut it off, you know, right at that point. Hopefully the sermon wasn't baloney, but we did have to cut it off at uh, verse number five. And uh, the week before that sermon, uh, we had already established the parameters of discipleship. Uh, the foundational principles, the dangers, the methods, and the goals. And so all that was left was to go through the text verse by verse, and we only got up to verse 5 last week. <clears throat> so we kind of did a systematic theology of chapter 2, and then a phrase-by-phrase -phrase exposition. Now, when we were looking at the first five verses, I pointed out that this was written in terms of a Hebrew chiasm. Chiasm is a a form of Hebrew writing, even though this is written in the Greek here, it was Hebrew-speaking people that used it, in which there is a parallelism of thought. Uh, it follows the ABCCBA kind of a pattern, and so verses 1 and 15 are parallel. They talk about Titus's oversight, and then the B sections would deal with the maturity of those who are doing the discipling work, uh, the qualifications of maturity, if you will, and that's verses 2 through 3 for men, and it's verses 11 through 4, I mean, 2 through 3 for women, and 11 through 14 for the men. And then the C sections show the work of discipleship in the immature, and it's the immature women, verses 4 through 5, and the immature men, verses 6 through 10. And so it's an A, B, C, C, B, A kind of a structure. And so once you understand that Hebrew thought, it makes sense that Paul only laid down the qualifications for men, but then he didn't deal with the work until he gets down here lower. And it also makes sense that even though Titus is the only one mentioned who's doing the discipleship here, he's just one of the representatives of the mature men uh, who are going to be doing the discipleship. And so there's the oversight of Titus, verses 1 and 15, then the B sections are the qualifications of both sets of of uh, uh, people, and then the, the work of discipling women, work of discipling men. And so he stands as a representative. And so that brings us up now to verse 6. Paul has just finished talking to 
the women about their responsibilities, and he says, likewise. In other words, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. He says, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. Now, the word sober-minded is the same word as discreet up in verse 5. So he's not just picking on the women when he says that they needed to be sober-minded. He's saying that the, the women, I mean, the men need to be sober-minded as well. Now, sometimes it's translated as self-controlled. Literally, it means clear thinking or rational. Sometimes self-controlled because in those contexts it's talking about behavior that's driven by our thinking rather than by our emotions. Now, one of the stereotypes people sometimes throw at women is that they think with their emotions rather than uh, with their heads. And Paul does not buy into that stereotype. He says, likewise, I want the young men to stop thinking with their emotions and st to start thinking with their heads. Uh, in other words, this is not an issue of sex. This is something that is just human nature. How many times has a young man ruined his marriage because of a fling? Uh, is that not thinking with your emotions rather than with your head? How many times has a, a man gone out and he has purchased something that later on he regrets and uh, he bought it just because of the appeal of the moment? Okay, um, actually the stereotype that uh, is used of men is that they tend to think with their hormones rather than with their head, but uh, many women are accused of the same thing once a month. So stereotypes aside, Paul says, I don't care whether it's sin or whether it's pride or whether it's your emotions, I don't care what it is, I want you to be rational. I don't want you to uh, be... Uh, 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 setting aside your mind. And when you think about it, every sin is irrational because sin is self-destructive. So why in the world would we sin? Well, it's because we feel like doing it. Okay, we're thinking with our feelings rather than our head. Now, literally, you can't think with your feelings. There's no such thing as that. But you know what I mean. You're being irrational. And the word here is um, sophronain, to be in your right mind. When you look at sin as God sees sin, it's the stupidest thing that you can do, and yet we engage in it all the time. And so he's saying, this is one of the things I want to make sure that these men are engendering in their lives, that they are becoming more and more rational in their thinking, rather than being driven by their physical and emotional drives. So don't ignore that word likewise. He applies this even-handedly. Now, how are Titus and the older men are going to be correcting this tendency toward irrationalism. Well, there are a whole series of steps. First of all, he says, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of works. You are not being rational when you tell somebody what to do, but you don't do it yourself. Uh, many people are hypocrites that way. They know what's right and they say what's right, but they're not living what's right. That's not being rational. And uh, so it's not enough to teach. God wants us to have a consistency of life that goes along with our discipling. I think my parents captured my heart uh, far more by what they did than by what they said. Now, I didn't always listen, but eventually the consistency of their life did have an impact upon me, as our lives can have upon other people as well. And notice how comprehensive this admonition is. He says, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. Now, we spent a long time, what was it, two sermons ago, 
uh, looking at the ramifications of this modeling side of teaching. There's the speaking side of teaching, but then there's showing people how to do it. And it's a very important uh, part of, of a discipling. Now, the Bible says that a disciple, when he is fully taught, will be like his teacher. Okay, there's a transference of life in discipleship. Now, I'm not going to revisit what we dealt with in that sermon. Um, I think I dealt with it enough. But I do want you to notice the connection of works and doctrine in this verse. Verse 7 again. In doctrine showing integrity. Now, the word integrity is a good translation. Literally, it means incorruptibility. And it's so easy for us to become corrupted, to compromise our doctrine because of the pressures of the immature. Um, the immature don't want to be pressed in directions that the Word of God says they should go, but it's uncomfortable. And so sometimes teachers get bloodied noses, and uh, you know exactly what happens then. Uh, the teacher, when he's been burned enough times, he begins to back off. He soft-pedals God's Word and compromises what he has to say. And um, it's so easy for this to happen. It happens with pastors. It happens with politicians who get burned. It happens with voters. We soft pedal, we compromise, and eventually we lose our integrity. That's what's going on here. And the only way people are going to be able to, to aim at the high goal that God has for us in family, church, and state is if those who are the disciplers are not constantly bringing things down because they're wanting to please men. You fathers, you need to make so clear, and you mothers, you need to make it, uh, it's so important that you not compromise the principles of Scripture in order to please those that you are dealing with, in order to get along. Now, he goes on to show the second thing that should characterize the doctrine, and that is reverence. Now, the idea is in doctrine showing dot, 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 reverence. So all of these things are what they're supposed to be showing. Now, this was exactly the same qualification that the older women were supposed to have. Uh, there needed to be a dignity and a reverence for God's teaching. When teachers tremble at God's word, when they fear disobeying God's word, it shows a kind of an attitude to the word that catches with the disciple. But on the other hand, if the teacher, you know, in certain areas of his life, it doesn't bother him at all to disobey God's word, then what's going to happen is that the disciple is going to end up not having any fear or reverence, and he's going to disobey God's word, and probably he's going to be doing it in areas you don't want him disobeying. You feel comfortable disobeying in these areas, but he's just going to apply it where he feels comfortable as well. And so you parents, and especially you fathers, it is ever so important <coughs> that you show a trembling at God's word that you dare not uh, disobey God's word in any of its points that you take God's word seriously if you want to have an influence on your children. In doctrine showing reverence. And then finally Paul says, in doctrine showing dot, 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 incorruptibility. Now this is the same word as integrity, and that's why incorruptibility is here as well, but it has an intensifier on the front. So here's the thought that's, uh, that's going through Paul's mind probably with this sequence of words. When you begin to lose integrity in the way in which you handle God's Word, you're going to begin to lose a respect, a reverence, a fear for God's Word. And when that happens, eventually, it's not just going to be integrity that's going to go out the window, but all moral principles that stand in the way of what you want are going to go out the window. It's going to be corruptible. And so he says, it needs, uh, we need to put on the opposite, incorruptibility. 
make sure that doctrine is not corrupted or destroyed through pressures of the family, pressures of culture. Uh, make sure you stand fast by what God's Word thinks. Now, one side note, obviously Paul thinks a great deal about doctrine, and we need to think a great deal about doctrine as well. Uh, some people are just impatient with doctrine. You know, why do we have to learn this? Now, let's just get on with living. But the living that they're going to get on with is going to inevitably be corrupted if they neglect the doctrine. Uh, the, the two really have to go together. And if we want to pass on good living, good works from generation to generation, it's imperative that we pass on doctrine from generation to generation as well. Verse 7 indicates works and doctrine go together. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder, you know, to misapply another, uh, another scripture there. But uh, we really do need to keep those, those two together. Works need to be doctrinally based. And doctrine needs to be practical or we're not teaching it the way God intended it to be taught. Now, verse 8 goes on to say, Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Now, unfortunately, some Christians, uh, they say the right things. In other words, they have sound speech. But they say it in such an ungodly way that the people that they say it to, all they can hear is that and they miss the sound speech. Um, we fathers can very easily fall into that trap. We can be saying the right things, have sound speech, but see, be so abrupt and harsh that the only thing our wives or our sons or our daughters hear is that we're jerks, right? They don't hear the sound speech. And so uh, what he is saying here is that it's very important not only that we have the good words, but that we do it in the right way. How you say it and when you say it is so important. Proverbs not only speaks of good words, but it speaks of words fitly spoken and words spoken in due season. Okay? And so uh, the, the content of the words, the manner of the words, and the timing of the words are important. Sound words, fitly spoken, in due season. And I think that's all that Paul is saying here. He's saying, have sound speech, but make sure you do it in such a way that you cannot be condemned by anything that people around you are saying. Make sure you're so squeaky clean that when people rebel against the truth, it's clear that they're rebelling against the truth and not rebelling against you. Now, that's not to excuse any rebellion that's out there, but it's a whole lot easier to take medicine when it's in syrup than, you know, the straight tinctures that I've been taking lately. Woo, those things make you shudder. And, and so he's just saying, this is the way to influence. You've got to make sure that you do it in a, proper, in a proper way, not just giving the good words uh, in a, a harsh way. And so Paul has, has covered the purity of the message, the gravity of the message, and the way the message is communicated. And I'm sorry I didn't get outlines for you today, but the, the, all three are important, the purity, the gravity, and the manner of the message. And now Paul comes to a part of the family that um, is many times missed, and that is slaves, or as some people translate it, indentured servants or bond servants. And this is probably going to be the most controversial part of this uh, sermon, especially in, in modern culture. <clears throat> Webster's Dictionary, uh, and it's a massive dictionary here, here's their definition of what a bond servant is, quote, a person bound to service without pay, 
a slave, unquote. They're all synonyms. And people howl when they hear the term slave brought up in the, in the, in the scripture. And so I want to take a long rabbit trail, and it's a planned rabbit trail that will help you not to be embarrassed by what the scripture says. Uh, there's nothing to be embarrassed about. There's nothing to apologize about in the scripture. In fact, when you think about it, as long as there are uh, criminals, there will always be slavery. It is inevitable. It'll either be the uh, slavery of our prison system uh, or worse slavery of the prisons in communist or Islamic countries, or it'll be the biblical kind of slavery or indentured servitude that was designed to bring people to freedom and to maturity and to get them out of their, uh, out of their uh, sense of bondage. And so we're going to take um, a little bit of a, a time to explain the difference. In the Bible, the slaves were a part of the household as long as they remained slaves, which hopefully wasn't very long. Uh, for example, in Genesis 14, it speaks of 318 slaves, quote, who were born in his house, in his household. So Abraham's household had 318 servants that were born in it, and they were treated as part of the household on many levels. Galatians 4, verse 1 says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. Now, if a child is the same as a slave, then logically a slave is not different at all from a child, except for on the two points that Paul brings up in that passage. One is the kind of inheritance that is received, and we'll see that a slave, when he's set free, receives an inheritance. So that's one difference. And then the time frame. And on both of those, Jesus said in John 8, 35, a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Notice God's purpose was not that slaves be slaves forever. It was not perpetual slavery like went on in America. That was not a biblical kind of... Um, uh, 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 of slavery, just as his purpose was not for children to remain immature forever. He wants both to grow up, and so he says a slave does not abide in the house forever. God's whole purpose was to move those slaves into freedom and into liberty. But as long as the slave was in the house, Paul says he did not differ at all from a child. Now that's biblical slavery or indentured servitude or bond servitude, however you want to uh, translate that. And it had an incredibly wonderful function, unlike the pagan slavery that went on in Rome, which was a terrible slavery. And that's why a lot of these translations use a softer term for slavery, uh, bond servants. Now, bond servants in the Old and New Testaments were treated with the dignity of children, quite different from our modern conceptions of slavery. And so masters had to treat them with dignity. They could not abuse them. Um, <clears throat> the slaves were expected to grow up, get beyond their immaturity, and to gain their freedom. In fact, for a believer, the maximum number of years that a believer could be a slave to anyone was six years. And at the end of that six-year period, the master had to give him some money, had to give him things from his flocks, so that he would be established and ready to start his own business and get on with, with life uh, down the road. For example, Deuteronomy 15 says, 
If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you, and when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your winepress. For what the Lord has blessed you with, you shall give to him. And there are many reasons why a person could get into slavery. Some of them might have involved uh, just poverty. You know, the person was so impoverished with maybe bad business deals or one thing or another that he would sell his future labor. Maybe he needed two years worth of labor and he would sell the next two years of labor, sort of like people do when they go in the military, you know, um, the next two years of labor in order to get out from under this debt. <clears throat> but more often than not, it was to pay for a crime. Now, here would be a sample reason why <clears throat> in a biblical culture there would be a person who would be in a temporary slavery. Um, Fred is a young man who has <clears throat> just uh, been a nuisance in the neighborhood. Uh, he's always drunk. He's always picking on the kids. And uh, uh, everybody's had a hard time with him. They've run across him vandalizing buildings and things like that, but nobody's been able to catch him. But one day, he's out driving his chariot and all drunk, waving this torch around at night, and some sparks catch a house on fire. And he sees that, and he becomes scared. And so to avoid detection, he goes tearing off in his chariot. And in the process, he runs over a person and breaks that guy's leg. Well, he gets caught. It's taken to the judge, and the judge says, okay, number one, you've broken this guy's leg right during harvest. He's going to miss out on one whole year of crops. You're going to have double restitution. At $60,000 a year, you've got $120,000 you owe for that. And the building that you burned down was $250,000. Well, the parents can't come up with the money, and the, the young man can't come up with the money. And so he's sold into servitude for the number of years that would be able to pay off uh, this debt. <clears throat> And so what happens is the people who have been harmed, they get restitution plus some compensation. And the businessman, he's taking a risk by buying this future labor. So he buys this labor at quite a discount and everybody benefits, including the slave. Now, let me explain why the slave would benefit as well. During the time that he is a slave, this young man would be learning how to control his anger how to be future-minded, how to show respect, all of the things that he, sh he, he did not learn as a child and he should have learned as a child. And um, <clears throat> if he gets out of line, the master has the authority of the rod. Now, what is the rod a symbol of? It's not a symbol of the state, right? The state has the sword. The rod was a symbol of the family. And he had the power of the rod uh, to administer discipline to this slave, not to abuse him, but to administer discipline if he got out of hand, even if he was 30 or 40 years old. Why? Because he was showing the immaturity of a six-year-old. And so <clears throat> he did have the, uh, the power of the rod there. Anyway, ideally, by the end of the six years of apprenticeship and discipleship, the goal was that this young man would no longer be immature. Uh, he would have gained life skills that would do him in good stead. He maybe didn't, hadn't learned before, so when he goes out in business, he will know them. Uh, hopefully, he would have learned character qualities through discipline that he hadn't learned in his family. At the end of the period, he'd have some money. He'd be able to get a new start on life. And in the process, both he and the whole of society are benefited. 
<clears throat> now that's much better than the slavery most, Christian, most um, prisoners endure in our prisons today where they learn what? They learn irresponsibility. They learn bad habits from other criminals. Um, they come out of the jail penniless and they have a bad record so it's hard to get a job. And so many times they're forced right back into crime again. Their time in prison was useless. It's worse than useless. It made them worse than it made them better. <clears throat> and um, so it's much better to be treated as a child in a godly home and to be forced to grow into liberty. Now, most people, I think, can see how with Christians, this would be a beautiful system and be far better than even the... Uh, forced labor in prison that you have down south, you know, the, the chain gangs down there, be far better discipleship. But what about pagans who were in slavery? Does not the Bible allow for perpetual slavery, um, perpetual, yeah, slavery uh, of pagans who were sold as slaves? And the answer is, well, yes and no. Uh, let me deal with the no, first of all. In the scripture, it indicates that if a slave escaped from a pagan home and a Christian found that slave, he was not to turn the slave back to his master. He was to make sure that he went free. And that's Deuteronomy 23, verse 15. Why would they let him go free? Well, it's because in the pagan home, they wouldn't have any of the context that would enable the purposes of slavery to take place, godliness that would move this person to maturity and eventually to be a, a good citizen in society. It wouldn't be present. And so in terms of God's order, there shouldn't be any of that slavery with pagans. It needed to be in a good home that would enable this person to grow up. This Deuteronomy 23, 15. Many times the pagans wanted them to be perpetually dependent. And so the Bible was absolutely opposed to pagans being perpetually enslaved to pagans or for Hebrews to be perpetually enslaved to pagans. They were to try to purchase that person's release. But even with um, a pagan being in slavery in Israel, it was intended for his eventual freedom. <clears throat> As this pagan got exposed to the word, remember he's in the family, in the family devotions, he gets exposed to the word, the likelihood is that he's going to become converted. And when he is converted, he will go through the same process, six-year process of discipleship, at the end of which time he gains his freedom and he has the same money and the same uh, ways of getting out there and doing something that the others would have had. And so it was a wonderful provision and it was intended for the slave's maturity and liberty. Now, not all slaves got it. Uh, some of them wasted their opportunities to learn a trade, to grow mature. They stewed in bitterness. They fought against their masters. They ran away. They were resentful. Some were so immature that they didn't want their freedom. <clears throat> Um, and the scripture made provision for that. Uh, it, it said that if a person loved his master and he just didn't feel he could make a go of it out there, he would have his ear bored through to the door and then they would put, no doubt, a, a ring in his ear. <clears throat> and there are a lot of people today, unfortunately, who opt for the slavery of socialism out of the same fears, and socialism is far worse than any form of slavery that you'll find in the Bible, far worse. But the scripture teaches so clearly that even the biblical slavery was not the ideal. 
Uh, the ideal was for people to so mature that dependency was not needed. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that every slave should try to gain his freedom if it is possible. Jesus said that a slave does not abide in the house forever. But any, anyway, don't apologize for biblical slavery. It's far better than anything in the Western Hemisphere, in communist countries, anywhere else. It was designed <clears throat> to make these people um, rehabilitated, as it were. So there's nothing to be embarrassed about that. Now, that's by way of background. <clears throat> what Paul was doing in this chapter was, number one, to agree with the Old Testament system of slavery, which means it's a New Testament system of slavery. Number two was to make sure that these slaves learned how to make the most of their time so that it would be a wise investment. And so let's look at verses 9 and 10, and let's look at some of the implications. First, exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters. Verse 9, instant obedience is something that every man, woman, and child needs to learn, and they need to learn it early. Uh, most should have been able to learn it when they were still children, but uh, there are a few that uh, don't even learn it later. You know, they uh, hopefully don't have to learn it in prison or even in biblical uh, form of slavery. But most people don't learn, or many people, I shouldn't say most, many people do not learn instant obedience. And many of the slaves in the American prison system do not learn it. They become more and more hardened with bitterness. And Paul in these verses, in effect, is saying, hey, guys, if you want to gain liberty, you're going to have the best chances of getting it if you follow my plan. And even if you never get liberty, you're going to have the best chances of having your conditions improved if you follow my plan. And even if your conditions don't change, you're still going to have the best chance of being a godly witness to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life if you follow my plan. <clears throat> and so even though there is no one-to-one -one correspondence in modern society, I think there's multiple lessons here. Since a child is compared to the position of a slave in Galatians 4, I think one application is obvious. It is imperative that children learn instant obedience as early as possible so that they can gain more and more freedom and liberty as they grow older. And that's the ideal for everybody. That's what God wants for everybody, to grow into liberty. Now, some children, they want their freedom and they want their liberty without having first learned obedience. And God says, no, nah, it's backwards. That's not the way it works. Even in the slave passage in 1 Corinthians 7, God says that, yes, if you can buy your freedom, do it. But in that passage itself, it indicates it's not apart from obedience. Uh, obedience and liberty really go hand in hand. But that obedience needs to be accompanied by five other things if it's to be a godly testimony to the world. And so whether you're in the position of a child, an employee, some employees feel like slaves, okay, uh, a person in prison or one who's learning maturity in other ways, here's five things, five additional character traits that should be added. First, obey in a way that will please the one in authority over you rather than aggravate him. Okay? To sullenly obey is not pleasing. It's aggravating. It's not going to get you any brownie points. It's not going to get you any advancements. It's not going to get you any liberties. Verse 9 goes on to say, to be well-pleasing in all things. Now, obviously, the all things is limited by the clause at the end of the sentence in the next verse, which says that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. In other words, all things biblical. And so he's not saying you have to obey uh, your master and be well-pleasing if he asks you to 
you know, murder or steal or commit adultery or things like that. But from morning until evening in everything that you do where the scripture permits, what the slave needs to do is seek to be pleasing to his master. What the prisoner needs to do is to seek to be pleasing to the prison warden. What the child needs to do is to seek to be pleasing to his parent. Uh, what the soldier needs to do is to seek to be pleasing to the one who enlisted him. <clears throat> and yet our flesh rebels against this. I've got to obey. Plus, I've got to have a good attitude about it. There's no way. Our flesh just rebels against that. And, and, and so we develop language that makes what God says is good sound bad. We call this kissing somebody's behind or brown nosing. We got other crude expressions to make what God says is good and it's going to be helpful to you into something that is bad. And so what we need to do is we need to transform our thinking and think God's thoughts after him. 2 Corinthians 5.9 doesn't just tell us to obey God grudgingly. It uses the same Greek word. And it says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. And the scripture says the same of all of the relationships, even the ones that are not directly related to what we're preaching about here. Of wives, 1 Corinthians 7.34 says, shows how she may please her husband. 2 Timothy 2.4 says of a soldier that he needs to strive that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And if people who are under authority would recognize this principle, I think it would help them to advance in, <clears throat> in whatever areas of dominion that they're in. I mean, just think of a waitress. We all recognize when a waitress is trying to be pleasing to us and to try, trying to make us have a great evening. We want to tip that person. We feel like tipping that person. In fact... It happens so rarely that when it happens to me, you know, I'm really served well by a waitress. I tip very, very generously. Uh, but we recognize that this is something good. A business that succeeds the best is a business that seeks to please the customer in everything, in all things. Isn't that the case? Now, in this case, the customer is the boss, right? So it's a principle that applies across the board. It's really, um, really the same. Uh, the... The, uh, think of a servant as somebody who is selling his services to an employer. Uh, everybody's really in the same boat. It just depends on which side of the coin you're facing it. But we need to be pleasing in all things. Now, related to this is the next phrase, which says, not answering back. The other two meanings in the dictionary are not contradicting or not talking against. Now, this is, <laughs> this is just Paul's version of Dale Carnegie's, you know, how to, it was Dale Carnegie, wasn't it? How to win friends and influence people. I mean, it's just a no-brainer. He says, you know, if you start talking back and you start contradicting your employer, the person who's in authority over you, you're not going to win brownie points. Instead, you're constantly backing him up in a corner. You're going to put his back up and he's going to be opposed to you. He's not going to feel comfortable because you're forcing him to defend himself. He says, don't do that. Don't do that. It makes it much harder for him to be a leader. Um, on the other hand, when you let him know you're quite willing to do what he says, even if it's not the wisest thing to do and he's not going to follow your advice, and you give advice in a way that makes the boss look good, he's going to love you. You're going to be indispensable. Okay? He's going to want you to be around. And so this is really uh, a no-brainer, and yet we, we just don't like it. Our flesh rebels against it. And by the way, 
men, do not ever complain to me about, you shouldn't complain to me anyway, but don't complain to me about wives and children who are in rebellion. If you say, do the same thing to your boss, if you show no respect to your boss, you're modeling that it's okay. Now he goes on, not pilfering. Slaves were very tempted to steal from their masters because they thought, hey, I'm not getting anything. I deserve this. You know, that uh, this is something I deserve more than what has been contracted uh, for me. Uh, unions do this, at least the unions I was uh, with up in Canada. Uh, they just turned a blind eye to pilfering that went on, and they thought, well, we couldn't negotiate enough. Despite the fact they were getting exactly what they contracted for, they thought they deserved more. This is just socialism, and socialism is alive and well on planet Earth, unfortunately. Um, and it's not just people stealing you know, from each other by taking government handouts, but it's the government stealing from the citizens. Everybody's in on the take. Everybody wants a piece of the action. And so what he's saying is Christian employees must be a cut above everyone else. He goes on, but showing all good fidelity. Now, fidelity is actually a bad translation. The Greek word is pistis, which just means believe or faith. And so the New American Standard Bible more literally has it, but showing all good faith. Do you really have faith that God will protect you, that he will take care of you? That's really what this is amounting to. Why is the slave stealing from his master? Because he's not trusting God to be able to take care of him. Why is he uh, talking back uh, to the master? Because he feels like his rights are being stepped upon and he's got to defend his rights. Let me tell you something. You don't have any rights the only rights you have are the right to go to hell. Jesus Christ, if you are believers, has purchased you and your rights and all that you have, and he does delight in giving those back to you, but only as you give them up. And so when we put the master or the other authority figure that's before us, when we put them first in our lives and their interests first, what we are saying is, Lord, I have faith in you. I trust you that you can change their hearts. You can change my circumstances. Uh, you can take away my rights. You can give my rights. I submit to you, but I want to be the best testimony that I can be. It's a faith issue. And that's why he uses the word pistis there. And once again, the testimony of biblical doctrine is brought up that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. In other words, that your life would adorn. What's an adornment? An adornment is something that makes you look beautiful, right? So he's saying that you would make beautiful the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ when they look on. You're making the doctrine seem attractive. And this is what God wants. You see this all throughout the Scripture. God wants our lives to be so transformed by His grace for us to be so changed that the pagans who are out there, they look on and they become jealous of the gospel. They say, this person has what I don't have. I wish that I had that. And you men, you need to make sure that the way in which you treat your wives, the way in which you treat your children has been so transformed by the grace and the doctrines of the Scripture that those women, they look at that and they see that doctrine as beautiful because you've adorned that doctrine. And they talk to their friends and they say, I don't know what it is that Phil's been teaching these men. I hope he keeps it up though because my man has been transformed. That is beautifying the doctrine of Christ. And you women, you need to be so desirous of pleasing your husbands, so desirous of ministering in their lives that the husbands are just blown away and they say, the doctrine, 
that has affected their lives is so beautiful. And you know, this has actually been a testimony in our church. There have been a number of times where people have come to this church and they visited and they said, you know, uh, Phil, I'm just blown away by the children of your congregation. Your children in this congregation are so faithful and uh, they're so obedient, I just cannot get over it. And what he is saying is the doctrine, you children have beautified the doctrine of God. And I've heard the same thing about the parents. And so be encouraged, be encouraged. Now, we all know that this is not easy. It's a tough thing to do. And that's why he ends this chapter with one of the most encouraging statements and treatments of the powerful, transforming grace of the Lord Jesus Christ you're going to get anywhere in the Bible. Lord willing, we're going to look at that next week. But we need that encouragement. We need that encouragement. And we'll look at that passage. But men especially, let's make it our aim to be, as this passage says, a pattern of good works in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed having nothing evil to say of us. Let's model that we are men who live under authority and uh, what it means to live under authority ourselves so that we may, it says here, may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word, even when it steps on our toes. We want to be holy, Lord. Uh, we want to be a holy people. We want to be pleasing in your sight. And I pray that you would help us, help us, Lord, from the cross of Jesus Christ, that your power would flow into our lives so that when our, our, our bodies and our flesh and our desires are crying out to do the opposite, that you would enable us to crucify our flesh and to have the life of Christ live through us. Help us, Father, to live by the power and the glory of your presence in our lives. Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, be glorified in our lives, and may the men of this congregation be a, a testimony of transforming grace. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's respond to God's word.